Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. Today, we're joined by Valerie Ellis, a former therapist who has followed her talent and now works as a fine artist in contemporary paintings, figure drawings, and abstract art. The challenge is to keep going. There's a lot of obstacles, a lot of things get in your way, and there's a lot of disappointments, and it it would be easier to give up. It would be easier to stop and do something safe. And as you get older, you feel the vulnerability of what it's going to be like to be old if this fails. So one of the big challenges is to is to not give up. Hi, Valerie. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to chat with you about your career change after 35. <laughs> Let's not mention any numbers, shall we? <laughs> okay. Your career, your career change, your fascinating career change. My career change. That's right. <laughs> Whatever age. I'm I'm of the Elizabeth Taylor school of thought. Uh, on the matter of age that you don't ask me and I don't say anything about it. (laughs) Apparently that was her rule. You know what? It's funny because people ask me a lot, like, well, how old are you? I'm like, first of all, let's not use the term old. Old, yeah, true. I'm an actor, so I'm whatever my playing age is. How old do you think I could play? Or young. How young do you think I could play? (laughs) I don't know. Does one ask a man? how old he is as a general rule. I, if one does, I think not with the same intention behind it. No. I'm quite sure of that. Absolutely, because I do kind of think, well, maybe it's partially that men have never been told that it's, it's bad to age. I feel like we've been told from an early age that we're going to become less important or less beautiful or more invisible. Well, I think we're told it's important to be beautiful and beauty is youth and then you just it's a short jump from that logic isn't it exactly well if I'm no longer beautiful I'm no longer important and that's linked to how old I am we just got right into it (laughs) I love it it's true though because I mean I feel like I'm jokingly I'm coy about my age but I don't really know any men that are coy about no no you can't ask you can't ask a gentleman that no no exactly and I know I should be more cool I mean as, as women who go I'm you know, excited to be having my 50th birthday, my 60th birthday, my 70th birthday. I'm like, fuck off. Like, I don't <laughs> stop saying those numbers around me. I don't, I'm not cool with it. I'm very, very vain. And I want to imagine I'm not aging. So don't draw attention to it, please. I think for me, it's just that I'm, I'm always saying on this show that I want to do everything. And the, the more time that passes, the more I'm like, I'm not going to get to that one. Yes. I'm never going to be an Olympic gymnast. That's not yes. fair. <laughs> yeah. and, and that bullshit that they say, it doesn't matter how old, it's never too late. That's the one. It's never too late. I'm like, well, it kind of is. I think it's, there is a point where it's too late to be a prima, prima ballerina yeah. or sail solo around the world. I don't know about that one. I think I would try, I think I would attempt that. We'll see. We'll see how fit I stay. Yeah. Yeah. Or I say I stay. I might have to get more fit to sail around the world, but. (laughs) I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but yeah, it is too late for some things. So, which is not a bad thing. It means if you know that you should get on with doing stuff. That's exactly true because I do think, you know, when time is of the essence, uh, personally, if I have, if I've procrastinated about something or if I have a deadline, mm. gets me on it. Well, actually, you, I know you wanted to ask me about what prompted me to get back into art and it was aging. It 100% was. I remember, here's me displaying my vanity for the world. I remember looking at the back of my hand and it looked older. It didn't look like it did before it the skin is thinner and I in that moment thought oh my god I'm aging oh my god that means I'm going to get old and I'll probably die I mean I'm fairly sure intellectually that's definitely going to happen but in that moment <laughs> I thought I'm probably going to die as well and that is the moment I thought oh well I better do what I want to do then it was literally a response to aging I, I looked at the back of my hand and I was horrified and I thought well I'd better do what I want to do now you're a visual artist. So did you have sort of this vision of your hand with a paintbrush in it and you wanted your hand to look a certain Nothing way while you're as romantic as that. <laughs> you're very romantic. So I have to share with everybody. I have to share what we were talking about before we started recording, which was, as I mentioned in the intro, Valerie had a career in psychology, moved on to what I was going to call her first love, which <laughs> is 
visual arts painting. And I asked if that was accurate. So would you call that accurate? And I said, no, I would not call it love. You're being too romantic about it. I'm not returning to my first love. Because you said, my first, would you call it your first love or your first talent? I'm like, no, it's a talent. Don't like, don't need to get romantic about it. I, I, you might love doing it, but it's a talent that, you know, if you're brilliant at drawing, it's a talent. If you're brilliant at horse riding, fantastic at, at accounting, really good at a sport, it's a talent. Love is another thing. So it's a return to a talent. In psychology, you have, there's something called the triune brain theory. And it holds true in a very generalist sense, but people will recognize this. The, the brain is structured roughly in three layers. At the back and the bottom of the brain is an area that mostly deals with physicality. Mm-hmm. There's the next layer up that, and this reflects evolution as well, the next layer up, which is very thick, deals with interpersonal matters. So any animal species that lives in a group has this thick center part of the brain because it deals with the incredible complexity of interacting in social life. So it's the part where you are evaluating the look on other people's faces and you're trying to get along with people and and it's very emotionally driven. And then on the top of the brain, the bit people sort of see the wriggly bit deals mostly with sort of abstract thought and very intellectual pursuits. Now, this is there are exceptions to everything I've just said. So I say it's a very generalist concept, but it's it's true. And so what you get as a result of this is people who tend to be hardwired more strongly in those three areas. And you have what in psychology I would call thinkers, feelers and doers. Mm -hmm. You know, in your life, if you think of, let's say, the tradesmen that you've met, bricklayers, carpenters, builders, people who mow lawns for a living, you know, they're a certain kind of person. Then you think of people who are maybe accountants or um, doing more intellectual things, doctors, they're more detached, they're more intellectual, right? And then you've got people who are very interpersonal, they're very social, nurses, managers, perhaps more artistic people as well. You have these three types of people, doers, uh, feelers and thinkers, and they reflect these parts of the brain. And when I give examples, I try always to give examples from those three types of people. So um, when I use the examples of talents, there are sporty people, people who are brilliant at building things, climbing trees, riding horses. They're doers. They're doer kind of people. They very much express themselves in their physicality in the world. Then you have feelers, people who are very emotive. They want to connect with others. Their relationships with others are the top priority. If they're going well, they're happy. If relationships are going badly, they're unhappy. Then you have intellectual people. They are they deal with concepts and theories. They're more dry and cool kind of people. And so when I think of talents, there are talents in those areas. Certainly for me, it's very obvious having been a therapist for a long time, what these people are like, you can you can call it in a couple of minutes of meeting someone, whether they're a thinker, feeler or doer, and that there are talents that emerge from that, that if people pursue they tend to live a more satisfying life because they're doing things they're brilliant at off the bat. There's two measures of this. If you know what something that's a talent, it's easy for you to be good at it and it's quick for you to get better at it. Right. Easy for you to be very good and you get better really fast, that's a talent. One of the things I've thought about with the podcast is because we talk about career change, it'd be really interesting to have someone on talking about career coaching, Mm. because I think there are probably a lot of people that listen and kind of go, yeah, well, I'd like a change. Mm. It's fascinating to hear you say that. And I'm thinking, oh, what if I, what am I really good at? And what comes quickly and do I get better at? I have to give that some serious thought. (laughs) People should be able to recognize themselves in that very broad three categories. Am I a doer, feeler or relater, let's say? or a thinker. And at the very least, your career should be embedded in one of those areas that you're hardwired in, in your brain. And you will excel, and you will enjoy yourself more, and you will hate being in the other categories. What about crossover? Are there people that are sort of the doer feelers or? So if you want to take it to the next level, what I would do if I was seeing a client, I would, we'd figure out what they were on the three. So I, for example, I'm a feeler, thinker, doer. In that order. Yeah. So it's not like I don't do anything because I'm not a doer. Of course I do. I actually like gardening. I 
decorated and built houses and blah, blah, blah. But my, my default position to operate from is feeler, is I care about how I feel. I care about how other people feel. I care about relationships. If they're going well, I'm happy. If they're going badly, I'm unhappy. So my primary mode of activity, if you like, is interrelationships, is interacting, is feeling. Secondly, I'm a thinker. I'm very, I like conceptual things. I've done degrees, so I'm capable of abstract thought. And then I'm a doer last. Like I, I exercise because I have to, but I don't really enjoy it. That kind of thing. So I, if I was meeting a client, I'd figure out, are they like me, a feeler, thinker, doer? Are they, a, let's say, um, let's say someone who is a builder, but a very successful builder, might be a doer, thinker, feeler. Mm-hmm. They're a builder first. They're, they're, they're capable physically. If they're successful, they probably act logically and in an organized, methodical way, which a thinker would be like. And a feeler last, because you tend not to be successful in business if you're too o- overly emotional and concerned with others. You've got a mission, you know. So there's an example. People, if you think about this carefully and maybe even tell others about this and ask them to rank you, it should be fairly straightforward to think, what's my primary? Think a feeler doer. What's my secondary? Think a feeler doer. What's the last one? What's the one I really don't like the most? And that's last. Yeah. And that would help guide you from a career point of view for sure. That's so interesting. It's, it's completely on a tan- tangent from what you've, well, it is, it, it's on a tangent and it isn't. Mm. I led you down this path, but of course I want to turn it back to you. As I've said, you had a career in psychology. What led you to that point to begin with? Oh, it's very, very clear. I had a really unhappy childhood. Both my parents were, were from really dysfunctional backgrounds and they were completely dreadful parents. My mother was quick to criticize, not averse to hitting. Um, if she was disappointed in what you'd done, I think she had very little insight into the other person, into the motivations of children. So she, I think she was very intolerant of what children are actually like. Mm-hmm. And so for me as a child, she would she was very critical, very not warm and connected most of the time. And then as I say, if you made something that she considered to be a mistake, she was very quick to hit and, and impose physical violence. And I'm being a feeler, so you can imagine as a feeler where connection is important to me, where getting along is important, where not getting along is devastating had a massive negative impact on me. My father was less, he certainly wasn't physically violent, but he had very old fashioned ideas. I mean, he he said to me once that it was important to be attractive because it was harder for people not to love you if you were attractive, i.e. if you're unattractive, nobody will love you. Yes. Um, so that's a, that's a really shitty thing to tell a child, especially a girl, I think, in, in the culture that we, you know, most of us grow up in. And not to psychoanalyze you, but you mentioned being vain. I mean, that obviously has a long-term impact where looks become so important. Absolutely. When I was young and selecting a partner, it was how handsome he was that mattered to me, not his character. And I was very concerned with looking right in order to be loved and hadn't cultivated proper character as a consequence of not seeing it as mattering. And so by the time I got to, and my parents divorced, I, um, I, then spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And of course, my mother was the way she was because my grandparents, they are, again, quick to hit, extremely eager to put you down. Uh, If you rushed into the room as children do, excited to show them something, that would be the moment they would choose to criticize what you'd done. Looking back now as an adult, fairly dispassionately, I actually think my grandmother was uncomfortable with happiness. I think she She'd had a miserable life and she was very comfortable mm. with mis- misery, negativity, pessimism. And so if you were happy, I think it actually made her uncomfortable. And so she had to put a stop to it. It depends on who you, you know, as a listener, you've grown up with them. But if, you, if you've ever encountered those adults who just always have a, a, a snide way of putting you down, that, you know, you don't walk right, your hair is wrong, you've said it the wrong way. So there's just constantly this. And then I grew up in, although my mother's a fairly middle class person conceptually, we were quite poor, like we didn't have a car, for example. And we, we lived in a poor part of town and we went to a poor school and it was quite violent. And I remember watching assaults of children on other children, which I still vividly remember and find nauseating. I I remember seeing a child throw a chair at a teacher. I'm not a robust kind of person physically. I find things like that very threatening. So by the time I'd finished school, 
I was extremely unhappy all the time. I just remember unhappiness wall to wall, horizon to horizon. I was very independent because I couldn't connect my uh, family. I, that you, I couldn't tell them anything. I couldn't ask them anything. I couldn't disclose anything. I, I remember I was, a girl attacked me in school and I got a black eye from it. I never told my mother. I would never have expected that my mother would have cared. So I never told her. And I don't think she even noticed. I was going to say, were you living with her at that yeah, point? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and she just didn't notice. She just didn't notice. I mean, we didn't, we didn't hug each other. We didn't really look at each other. I don't remember her saying my name very much. So I could have definitely come and gone for a, for a few days in the house and had a black eye. Not a massive swollen, you know, beaten up in a boxing ring black eye, but she would have, could easily have not noticed me for a few days and that for that to have gone away with her not noticing. So that's the kind of experience I had, very isolated and, and unhappy. And I had a boyfriend uh, eventually and he realised I was a very unhappy person and he gave me a book. Um, it's called The Road Less Travelled. And it is the thing that changed my life. I read it. I, it told me I was unhappy. I had, I was so concerned with outer appearances, I had never cultivated an inner world. I didn't know how I felt. Even though I was unhappy, I can tell that looking back. Um, I, I, you couldn't, I couldn't have answered that as a child, as a 17-year-old, let's say. Someone had said, how do you feel? I would have said, fine. Yeah. But I read the book and at that point, what, I would have been 20, I think. And number one, it, it showed me I was unhappy. Two, it showed me why, that it was my childhood. And three, it showed me what to do about that. And that was a book on psychology. I think it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for decades. It's, it's incredibly yeah. good. And it just transformed my life. I, from that, I decided to become a therapist. A combination of realizing the effect that my um, childhood had had on me and how powerful psychology would be to rescue me from that because I, I didn't want to be miserable for the rest of my life once I discovered I had been. Being asked to self-evaluate your emotions as a child or as a young person, mm -hmm. I don't think we really have the capacity for that anyway. But then to, on top of it, have this childhood where nobody kind of gave you a connection where you could start connecting with yourself as well. That, mm -hmm. makes, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I don't think they, they knew how they felt either. I think my, if my mother hit me, for her, her explanation would have been because you did something wrong, not because I'm angry and I'm hitting you to express my anger. That, that's more true, yeah. but she would have blamed my actions instead of taking responsibility for her feelings. Yeah, or just saying, I don't know how else to express these feelings. Yeah, I don't remember her saying, I'm unhappy, I'm angry. I'm happy, I'm joyful, I'm frightened, I'm anxious, I'm depressed. She wouldn't have articulated her feelings either. So I certainly had, didn't even have the language. I mean, I remember, I remember realizing one day I couldn't say the word beautiful. It was such a foreign word to me that I heard, began to hear people saying, once I left home at um, 17, you start living in other environments and people are different to your family. And people mm -hmm. would say, oh, that's beautiful. Or hi, beautiful. Or what a beautiful dress. And I remember realizing I found saying the word beautiful really physically uncomfortable because I hadn't said it before. You have me completely psychoanalyzing myself now. <laughs> I don't know. The word beautiful is really challenging for me as well. And I remember mm -hmm. saying probably in my early 20s that I always thought that I would be cute. I would never be a beautiful woman. When we talked about age before, no matter how old I've gotten, mm. the word beautiful is very difficult for me. Like when you said that's a beautiful dress, I would not use that compliment to someone. Isn't that interesting? So you, you've got some, you, some kind of rule around what the word beautiful is reserved for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember very vividly using my theory about my looks to someone who was an older man that I was working with. Mm. Not And he wasn't like in a skeevy kind of way or anything, but he was like, I don't understand what you mean. You are a beautiful woman. Mm. And it blew my mind. Mm. I don't think anyone had ever said to me that I was beautiful. And mm. even now, with a lot more self-confidence, mm. I still look back at that and kind of go, oh. <laughs> but you know, and I, I'm going to guess it's because it's hijacked by the beauty and fashion industry. Oh yeah. That the media says you, in order to be in order to warrant the label of beauty you have to look like Christy Turlington or Cindy Crawford and if you don't you don't get to call yourself that. But we could sell you a lipstick that could get you there. 
you know, <laughs> or a dress that could get you there. But you're not allowed to call yourself that because you have to look like them. So we've gone off again because <laughs> <laughs> you got the book, you realized psychology probably more from a sense of this is showing me something I can fix. Let me go into it and help other people maybe. If I have made one serious mistake in my life, that is it. I mean, it's unfortunate that I didn't do art from the start because that's a talent and I should have. But that was imposed upon me. I had to repair myself in order to do anything else with my life. So I, I was forced on a detour to psychology. But in terms of my own choices, if I've made one major error, it is becoming a psychologist instead of becoming a client of a psychologist. What I should have done from that book is gone, oh, I need therapy. Not but to I become a therapist. I should become a therapist, you know. <laughs> And look, I was close, you know, I was near the bullseye, but significantly off because I am um, I'm, I'm, was a really good therapist and I have clients who love me. I know I, may, I know I help them turn their life around, but I wouldn't say that my natural talent is to be a therapist. I've met people whose natural talent is a therapist and they are a very distinct kind of person. Mm-hmm. They, they stand there and they exude a therapeutic sense between you and them. You feel better in their company. That's not the kind of person I am. I, I do therapy, but I'm not uh, I'm not therapy as a, as a human being. So if I made a mistake, it was becoming a therapist instead of, be, instead of getting therapy. I wish I had done that. Because I, I, if I just repaired myself for, a, I don't know, three, five years, and then gone and done a fine art degree, I would have been a superb painter 20, 30 years ago. Now I, I've been a, a really good therapist for 20 years when I could have been being an artist during that time. Do you feel like it was sort of at the back of your mind all the time or was it something that you just, it was so far removed because you had chosen to be a therapist, you maybe realized you weren't quite as happy as you could be, but you weren't sure why? Or was it something that you were like, why am I doing this? I should be an artist. No, I was I all I always did arty things, but I wasn't conscious that I should have been an artist. So I bought houses and renovated them and, and made money because I had a good eye for that. I did interior design, I designed silk scarves and sold silk scarves in a business for a while. Sometimes I would paint and draw and people would admire it, but I hadn't done enough on the idea of talent, on the idea of life purpose, to think, oh, shoot, um, I'm on the wrong track here. Right. That came a lot later. When I got into the, into the area of business and entrepreneurship, and, the, and in that field, there is this concept that you should be doing something that is, a, is your purpose in life. That would make it easier for you because you'll enjoy a business better if, you're, if it's doing the thing that you're talented at and, and is your purpose. What did change that made you say, this is my purpose, this, you know, if you weren't recognizing it for a long time? As I, say, I think it was a case of getting into the, of, of being a therapist for a while, but it certainly wasn't the, for me, you know, a, a joyful skip through the daisies every day because it wasn't my purpose. It wasn't um, my my natural talent. Then you start to question. You think, oh, well, what should I do instead? And by a process of sort of fiddling around with experimenting and exploring the idea of, well, what, what should I do then? This idea of purpose comes starts to come up. And that's definitely embedded in talent. And talent is something you're born with. So I look back and go, oh, what was I born with? Oh, well, that's what I was brilliant at. So for example, again, you know, remembering I was really unhappy in school. So most classes, I wasn't really paying a lot of attention in uh, even art, which I was really, really good at. And I did my art exam at the end of school. I did the, the exam, the drawing that was required, and I went to leave. And the art teacher said, well, where's your portfolio? And I said, oh, what portfolio? He said, well, the portfolio you were supposed to be making all year long. Now, I'd managed to go to a year of art classes and either not hear that or hear it and ignore it. Mm-hmm. And so she let me stay for the rest of the day and make a portfolio. So I'm drawing and painting and writing and make a year's worth of work in one day. And it's sent off. And not only do I pass the art exam, I get the highest mark in the country that year. So I look at that. If someone said that to me, if someone came to me as a therapist and told me that story, I would say, well, what the fuck are you doing then? Like you yeah. should be 
doing that, whether that's accounting, mathematics and accounting or horse riding or art. What the hell are you doing if it's not that? And there's a point where you start reflecting back and say, if you're if you're feeling I'm not satisfied with my life, well, what's my purpose then? Well, my purpose must be my talent. What's my talent? Well, what was the original thing I was absolutely brilliant at? Well, that thing, that thing that meant you got the highest mark in the country that year without having to try very hard. I have to say, just since this is primarily something people will be listening to, this is legit. Valerie's art is legit. <laughs> I mean, I hope I didn't do it. Did I sound brilliant? I, I, I don't take responsibility for that. I, in, a, in the same way that I don't think someone who can brilliantly add up column of numbers in seconds in a way that I never will be able to, that they personally deserve the credit. It's like taking credit for being tall or having blue eyes or being able to jump really high. That's not something you've earned. You've got it. So if I'm really good at art, I'm not saying I'm really good as a person. I'm saying I have this capacity to be really good. If I get better at it, that's me. I deserve yeah. that. But the talent is is like, literally, it's like, it's a genetic thing. It's like being tall. But I still, I mean, I looked at your artwork and was like, wow, <laughs> it's really good. I, I like people who know what their talent is. I like people who can say it as well. I mean, if I met someone and they said, I'm a brilliant horse rider, I would love that. I, I prefer people who like themselves and are proud of what they can do well. Knowing that what they do well is half genetic, half natural talent, and half earned, half built by them through effort. I know in another interview, you were talking about where you started and how you've kind of developed your style, which I think is also really interesting, because as someone who I've like dabbled in art, I guess you could say, but I don't know, I'm intrigued by the idea of sort of developing your style, going from something maybe more realistic into the more abstract paintings you're working on now. How have you been finding this evolution? Well, I definitely started, I think, like most people do, most artists do. Let's assume we're talking about drawing and painting here. By trying to reproduce reality with a pencil or a paintbrush, because that's what impresses people. As a child, if you can draw a dog that looks like a dog, people clap their hands and go, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Because for people for whom drawing and painting is not their talent, they, it would be hard for them. So for people who can't draw a dog, they think it's amazing. Yeah. And as a child, you're praised for getting it closer and closer to reality. That's definitely true for me. So as a child, I was very good at that. And then as an adult, getting back into it, my goal was to draw something that looked really like the thing and paint something that looked really like the thing. And painting's a lot harder because you've got some other variables in play, colour and texture and blah, 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 to take account for to make a painting look like the thing rather than just the drawing. But there is a point when you realise, well, I could just keep painting paintings that look like things. What's the point of that? I mean, for me, I know there are people for whom that's sufficient and that's fine, but it seemed a little bit pointless after all because I think, well, I could just take a photo then, couldn't I? Or I could just either have the bowl of fruit rather than paint the bowl of fruit <laughs> or I could take a photo of the bowl of fruit rather than paint the bowl of fruit. Like, What's the point of just painting it to look exactly like it? There, there was a point... 200 years ago, 500 years ago, when there was no camera and when it was a long winter and you weren't going to see fruit for six months, like there was, there was a real point to that. But now, it, to me, it seems fairly pointless. So, okay, so what's the next thing to do then? Well, give it some character. So then you, and I'm finding I'm moving through basically the evolution of art history itself. Like the Impressionists, you think, well, okay, now the bloody camera's been invented. Thanks for making me redundant. No <laughs> no longer are people going to buy my bowl of fruit paintings because they don't see a bowl of fruit for a while. The damn camera's taken over that from me. So what do I do for people? How do I make a living as a painter? So the next thing is to inject some character into the thing, into the painting. And obviously the Impressionists did that by focusing on light and atmosphere and things like that. And I did the same thing. I started to try to make the bowl of fruit have colour. I mean, my the evolution started with still life because it's the, the thing stays still long enough for you to try to get it right. And I think that's yes, you know, it's cheap and all the rest of it. So, and it's a fairly benign subject. It's not too provocative as a subject. So, realistic bowls of fruit is where I think a lot of us start, <laughs> and then we move on to bowls of fruit with character. And then the next, you realise the next aspiration is to paint people because people are really hard and they're not benign subjects. They're complicated, provocative difficult subjects to get right and then you, you paint them realistically then you paint them with character and then you move through as I say like art history so you get into 
abstracting things more and more designed appearance to the painting and then you start to have you have a choice then about what of the now sort of the buffet of art styles that you could choose from what which which way are you going to go and there was a point I remember probably a year ago or two where I thought okay so either I get more and more and more realistic like more absolutely brilliant at painting people because the people are the pinnacle subject in art Either you, I go down the route of becoming absolutely fantastic at this, like uh, John Singer Sargent or Soroya or someone like that, just incredibly evocative paintings of people. Anyone who paints knows that's a certain route to go down. There's a certain discipline and refinement of skill required to, to get there. Or I move away from trying to become a brilliant representational artist and move towards some form of abstraction. So that's where I'm headed at the moment. I keep a foot in both camps. I've, I've decided now I'm going to draw people very well because I, I do think the discipline of eye that is required to do that and the, and the refinement of physical skill that's required to do that keeps you brilliant, keeps you really good. And I also paint abstract expressionist oil paintings because that requires a sort of cultivation of an inner world, a cultivation of style, a cultivation of personal expression, an idea about putting your own stamp into the world that abstract expressionism allows or facilitates or is is required of you to be really good at that. So I, I go in both directions to be expressive with the oil paintings and to be refined and exact in the drawings. They each demand something of you, which I think keeps you open and expansive and not one-sided. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think it's because, like I said, your artwork is really brilliant and legit. But I think seeing both, I mean, considering you're just new to this journey pretty much with the abstract, Mm. I look forward to seeing where you go with it. But I also right away saw this beautifully illustrated woman next to this Mm. massive crazy abstract piece. That is not a technical art critic term, by the way, massive crazy piece. (laughs) But I don't think you, I don't think you see that very often. I mean, you think when you see the great artists that you go and you see, oh, when they were young, they were very, as you say, talented Mm. at drawing Mm. something very realistically. Then you see them sort of evolving through their career. And I think it's really interesting that you've taken that and in a very short time period, how can I start evolving? Mm. I don't know. To me, that sounds like the perfect way to stay well-rounded. I've got to be honest. The other reason I do both is because people who aren't into abstract art have this idea that it's easy and that you're probably doing it because you're lazy, because you can't do the proper art, in inverted commas. So you walk into a a gallery with abstract art and you think, well, people say this, anyone could do it, which is bullshit, it's wrong, it's completely inaccurate. And it's, it's an excuse for not doing something harder. If I can put up a drawing next to it, which is really breathtakingly realistic and moving, then they can't accuse me of doing the oil painting out of laziness, <laughs> out, of, out of inability to do some, doing something more accurate. And I had a show that was going to happen, but bloody lockdown happened. And I have the same show coming up in December. And there's two floors to the gallery. Upstairs will be the abstract oil paintings and downstairs will be a lot of the drawings and, and what I call people paintings, like faces and stuff. I'm interested in people looking upstairs and going, yeah, yeah, nice, nice. Going downstairs going, oh, she can do proper paintings. As well. She can do proper art as well. Okay, then the upstairs isn't because she can't draw a face properly. Well, it is interesting you say that, though, about about whether it requires talent to do abstract, because as I say, I've done some dabbling. I mean, I went to design school, so I've done illustration and art and things like that my whole life. But I've dabbled in, for a while I was painting baby animals. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like what I was doing for friends when they'd have a baby. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty good at, you know, realistic, you know, slightly stylized because I also did design kids clothes. So I did a lot of, you know, squishy baby drawings and (laughs) squishy animal drawings and things. But I've always thought, oh, you know, it'd be really interesting, like you say, to develop your style. Mm. But anything I've tried to do abstract, I know color, I know texture, I know how color works together. Mm. And yet laying out a really dynamic, interesting painting that pulls you in. It's so challenging. So I absolutely appreciate what you're saying because I think even people who are really brilliant maybe at more realistic things aren't always going to be brilliant Mm. at abstract, which is why I was so moved seeing your work and going, yeah, she's, she's really, 
she's really mastering both. Thank you. I appreciate. I do appreciate that. And it, it is harder than it seems. And I'll tell you why. Because I've, I've thought about this. Why is this hard? I mean, not. And I, I would really want to underline this. Not hard like digging a ditch. Not hard like giving birth. Not hard like being wrongfully accused of murder and standing in court. Like, I, I don't want to put this in perspective. I hear sometimes artists go, oh, it's so, I'm struggling with my art. Like, hang on a minute. You're inside for a start. <laughs> You're painting stuff. Like, life, pretty, that's pretty good, actually. That's pretty good. And yeah. Hard in, in, the, in the least hard sense of the word hard, I would argue. It's an interesting challenge. It's an interesting <laughs> challenge, emotionally and intellectually, but by no means, like, you know, really hard. But anyway, just to put that, I just want to put that absolutely in perspective. I always check myself. I'm like, oh, I'm struggling here. Yeah, well, hang on a minute. I question myself, well, why is abstract difficult? Because although it's technically difficult to draw a face really well, you have that as a template. You have exactly what mm-hmm. you're aiming for. So in a maths exam, it's two and two and two is six, I hope. <laughs> I had to think about it. Let <laughs> me just get my phone out and do that. check that. Yes, I'm pretty sure it's six. So, um, so in a maths exam, there is a answer. In drawing a person's face, there is an answer. There is an end point. The nose must be here. The eye must be exactly there in order for it to look like the person. So there's a, a level of exactitude required of you, but there's a definite destination. What's difficult, in inverted commas, in perspective, about abstract art is there is no predetermined final point that you have to aim for in order for everyone to go, clap, 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 that's exactly right. It's your decision about where you put colour, where you put form, where you, how much texture you add, how big, how small, how red, how green, how purple, how light, how dark the thing is. And so when it's finished on the wall, it is, it is entirely your production your decisions on the wall and you have to like it or you have to approve of it and it's nice if others do as well and if that doesn't happen you're the complete you're the all your decisions were in error if it's not satisfying if it's not correct somehow and you know you know that as an artist and other people know it as well so if it's not correct it's entirely down to you because you put everything where it was and you didn't get it in the right place in inverted commas for it to be satisfying even as an abstract painting there's this level of vulnerability that you're kind of putting yourself in because it's not clearly 100% right. Mm, mm, exactly. In a mathematical way. Yes, it's, yeah. This is emotionally or physically how I feel yes. in, in, in visual. <laughs> well, I, I, see, I think of it as decisions. So yes, how I felt. I, I, to be honest with you, having painted abstracts and I, for example, look at say Helen Frankenthaler doing painting and or look at video of, of Jackson Pollock doing painting, I can assure you they're not there emoting over the painting. They are busy painting. So for me, my, exp- my inner experience of painting an abstract is not a feeling gushing out down my arm through the, through the paintbrush. It's more a decision. It's a, so this is the color I'm putting on the brush and this is the place I'm putting it on the painting and this is how much of it I'm putting on in this direction and with this much texture put into it. It's a series of decisions. Now, those decisions might be born of some emotional motivation, but what you end up seeing on the wall is is an accumulation of the decisions that you made as a painter. And either they, all your decisions uh, added up to something you admire, or they didn't add up to something you admire. And so that there's the the rightness and wrongness is less in the accuracy of the face and more in the artistic rightness, shall we say, of your artistic decisions. And that can be so many different things. So it's it must yeah. be sort of overwhelming looking at a big blank canvas and going. Hmm. <laughs> well, I look at things like Guernica, like um, Picasso's Guernica or yes. Rothko's work. I mean, he, I think that's incredible. His decision to paint so little is incredibly brave. I was going to use the word brave. Yeah. It does seem brave because... To paint so little, to paint yeah. so little. I've tried that. I've tried to paint as little as that and I felt guilty. I felt lazy. I felt like, well, I haven't put a lot of effort in it haven't, if I haven't put more on the canvas. So I, I understand for him it was very daring to, pay, to put so little on the canvas. So moving away a bit from this abstract chat about painting, but back to the practical, mm. are you doing, is this what you're doing full-time now? Yes. Yeah. So I, I gave myself that. 
And I, I preface this by saying, I know not everyone can do this, but I sold everything I own to do this. I don't have a home anymore. I don't have a lot of the beautiful things I used to have, which I cherished very much. I know it's not fashionable to like things, but I do like things. And I had to let go of a lot of it. I uh, moved from Australia back to England and sacrificed a lot to do that. So yeah, it's all invested in that to be as, and we, we're using this word now, as brilliant as I possibly can be if I fully invest and commit to this. Well, my question after that was going to be, what's the biggest challenge? But <laughs> I don't think I need to ask that question because that sounds like a good enough challenge to me. I don't, it's the biggest challenge. I think to continue on actually is big to, maybe we shouldn't pit challenges against each other. I mean, it was a big challenge to, to, to sell everything and to move again. Although the challenge is to keep going. You, there's a lot of obstacles, a lot of things get in your way and there's a lot of disappointments and it would be it would be easier to give up it would be easier to stop and do something safe and as you get older you feel the vulnerability of, of what it's going to be like to be old if this fails so one of the big challenges is to is to not give up but one but i suppose really the ultimate challenge is to be successful like how do you be successful is how do you keep going how do you make brilliant art how do you challenge yourself how do you evolve how do you get into galleries how do you get people to buy your work to try one day to be wonderful and fantastic and be admired and collected, that's the biggest challenge, to be successful. Because you mentioned the show and it was going to be your first, well, it is going to be your first solo show yes, in don't London. Don't start me on lockdown. <laughs> on a bit of a hold. Don't start me. Well, yeah, I know. At this point, everybody's like, no, we can't talk about this. I'm assuming it wasn't just an overnight thing, but how did you manage to, to score this show? Well, I wouldn't call myself a lucky person. I don't think I'm unlucky. And I never believed in luck until I met someone who just was lucky all the time. And I thought, bloody hell, it does actually exist. <laughs> so, but anyway, in contrast to them, I'm, I'm neither lucky or unlucky. But luckily, a very good friend of mine, actually, I want to say her name, Robin. She's wonderful. She's, she is tirelessly supportive of me as a friend when I go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about my stuff. So I do want to give her a shout out for being shout out to Robin. <laughs> supportive and optimistic friend. She happens to know someone in a really big gallery in London, like a top tier, amazing gallery. They would never talk to you normally. And she happened to know someone in there and she got me an audience with the director of this gallery. And it's just like, it would it would be like, I don't know, 500 years ago, walking in to see Henry VIII um, as a peasant. You know, like, you'd be like, oh my God, you know, just a breathtaking. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, exactly. And I know I should be more cool and hip about this, but I'm not. No, no, I get it. <laughs> So I, I meet this person and they're very encouraging and they said to me, if you want, if you're serious about this, you need to do two things. You need to have a show. You need to have a show. You need to have put your stuff out there and you need to have a studio in London. So, okay, oh, cool. I can have a show. I'm pretty, if you give me a goal, I'm pretty good at sort of going for it. So I had um, a lead on a gallery in London. I talked to them. They were just lovely. And um, we organized a show for uh, yeah, mid-November. And that was really short notice. They had happened to have a, uh, some time open. And I had, I think, two weeks or three weeks to get the show together. And I know saying that out loud, if you have never had anything to do with this, that sounds like, well, yeah, how long, she's Louise, how long can it take to get your paintings together and stick them on a the wall? Actually, it's an incredible, it was like organizing a wedding. Like it was a massive task. Yeah. But I got there. But then, goddamn lockdown happened and we won't go there. <laughs> um, so that was very disappointing. So that was by effort, by contacting the gallery and finding space and having them look at the work and go, yeah, we want you in and you can have the space. But you've got to be here ASAP and get all the gear done and invest in the framing and all the rest of it. And I, there is a, a friend of mine who owns a little tiny gallery in Brisbane in Australia, and she has some of my work as well. So that's how that happened. And then the next project is actually getting a studio in London. So I don't want to live in London. I really love the countryside. I don't like mm -hmm. an urban environment. So here's another sacrifice that I think, okay, maybe I have to go and live in London, spend my money on a space there, which I could get 10 times as much space outside of London. And this, the, this person advised me, you need to go there and you need to be in the scene if you want to be in the scene. I know a lot of people, or I've seen a lot of artists who are living outside of London, and I'm sure they don't want to hear that, but you do hear also 
you have to be part of this scene. There's a lot of complaints because there's brilliant theater happening mm. in the North and mm. there's a lot of TV starting to be filmed in Liverpool. And, mm. you know, so London isn't, it's not quite as London centric anymore. Yep, agree. But nine times out of 10, if you see a casting or you see, it, it is about getting into London. People feel like if you have a big show in London, that's where it's at. Yeah, it, it depends what you want. It, there's a few factors. There's some, some of it's luck. I mean, if you're if if an amazing collector happens to be driving through Devon and comes to your studio and buys ten of your pieces and catapults you into stardom, fantastic. But it's it's luck because there's brilliant artists everywhere. Um, that's luck that they happen to drive past at that point and your gallery, your studio happened to be open on that day. I don't consider myself peculiarly lucky, lucky, and I don't want to rely on that luck that might happen once in a thousand years for that to happen. And also some people don't want to be super duper successful and sacrifice stuff. They they want to live in, in a village somewhere and that makes them happy. So I'm not saying this is the pathway all artists should follow, but if you want what I consider success and recognition and you talked about sort of developing style, developing yourself as an artist in, in the same way that great artists do, as in they they really, they become art themselves. They are part of art history. That's that's part of the goal for them. That's their mission and their purpose and what matters to them. Then yes, you do need to be where, where, where it's at. I mean, if you want to be a Hollywood actress, you have to be in Hollywood. If you don't want to be a Hollywood actress, don't go to Hollywood. Yeah. It doesn't make you any better or worse. It's just difference in what you want. Yeah. I remember an interview with Oh, in Lord of the Rings, who was the woman, the actress who played the fairy or the goddess or whatever with the long white hair, the Australian actress? Oh, Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett, right. So I remember seeing an interview with her and they basically said, well, why, why have you been successful? And I loved her answer. She said, for two reasons, because I put myself where things were happening. And um, she said, luck. She said, I know lots of brilliant actors better than me fantastic, breathtaking actors who will never be in the movies because they're not there, they don't, didn't get the casting, they didn't get along with someone, they didn't know someone. Because people get into the movies does not mean they are the best actors. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really honest of her. And so I am 100% sure there are breathtakingly good um, painters living somewhere that we will never see who, are, who I would look at and think they are fantastically better than I will ever be. But... I want to throw my hat in the ring as much as I can do to, to accomplish what I can accomplish. And I say my experience of life is I haven't gotten things given to me. I have to go out and get them. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, you've already moved. You've already sold. You, you're doing this because you want to do it before you look back on your life and wish you had. If my hands get any worse. <laughs> before your hands get any worse, you might as well throw your hat in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about all of this for so long because there's so many interesting facets, both to the psychology part, the art part. But I did ask you about a positive quote. Do you have one that inspires you? There's a couple of quotes that are that are good. Yeah, I'll give you that I think are really good. But I'll preface it by saying, look, no, I don't wake up in the morning with a quote on my lips. <laughs> You're being very romantic about stuff. I can't help it. I never have been called romantic, but I guess I really am. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got there's two quotes I'll give you though. Shakespeare one, um, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Mm, I love that one. That's so a good. really, really good one. And which I struggle with because I because being a feeler first and being fairly emotive and having had a un, very unhappy childhood, which I can't say I'm perfectly cleansed of, um, I do tend to get upset about stuff and 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 think life's hard and and I have to remind myself that. It is actually fantastic. I'm not in a refugee camp. I have a bloody brilliant life. And so think how I think about things will have a big impact on how much I enjoy my day rather than just the thing itself. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one that's on my Facebook page. I think it's a Viking saying. That is badass. It, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it is, be afraid to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Ooh. Isn't that bloody stealing? Like I love, that just makes you- Every hair went just straight up on my head. Yeah, your chest should puff out. Be afraid to die until you have won some victory for humanity. And I'm in the the position 
I think to more, more go for that. Like if if you're even you're you know a, a nice mum in the suburbs with three children, that's pretty hard to sort of be trying to win a victory for humanity when you've got you know you got to drive children to school and stuff. So I get that. But, <laughs> but I, I'm I'm in the fortunate position of having less. Uh, accoutrement around me and so I can go for those kind of things and I feel I'm, I'm vehemently feminist and for me that's the victory for humanity I'd like to focus on that I, I want to definitely have made a mark and to make the world a better place and to stand up for what I believe in and, and be courageous on whatever topic whether that's art and exposing myself or whether that's standing up to some dick on Facebook saying something stupid or lobbying a politician or whatever I, I want to be afraid to die before I win some victory for humanity. I love that. Tell us where we can see this gallery show and when, hopefully. When, hopefully. If the the art gods favor me in any way at all, it will be in December in Shoreditch in London at a gallery called Espaccio Gallery. Espaccio Gallery. On my website, veryvalerieellis.com, I will keep updating there. So on the front page, there's an update on when the show will be. I suppose I can do the whole, you can follow me on Instagram thing where there'll be updates as well. So it's very Valerie. It's very Valerie Ellis everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very Valerie Ellis, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you and I cannot wait to get to the gallery and see this show. I cannot wait for lockdown to be over in general, but that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to when we escape. I would love to see you at the show. And we would, we could take our pictures of ourselves in front of the art and do the selfie thing. That would be excellent. So everyone go see this show because I promised you you're going to be so impressed. Follow Valerie on Instagram. Thank you again, Valerie. Thank you. It's been really wonderful. Good, good. I had a really good time. When Valerie's show opens at Espaccio Gallery, I'll be joining her for a live chat and Q&A. If you'd like to ask Valerie a question or would just like to say hello to the second chapter, leave us a message. Go to anchor.fm forward slash the second chapter and click message. I'd love to hear from you and you may even be featured on the podcast. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started. So your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.